Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? For what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Matthew 16, 21-28 Good morning, church. Let's click or open our Bibles to Matthew 16. We're going to be looking at one of the fulcrum moments in Matthew's story of the history of Jesus on earth. Uh, And I want to remind you that this is not uh, like a narrative, a mythological narrative. This is not fiction. It's very important that what we're going to talk about this morning that challenges us in our discipleship is historical fact. A moment in time that actually happened between the God-man on earth and his disciples. Now, you may ask yourself as we enter into this, uh, well, this was for them, right? This is a statement and question Jesus asked of them, but I want you to know it's not just for them. It transcends this moment, and it applies to all disciples going forward, so it's relevant for us. We're in the 16th chapter of Matthew. We have learned a lot about Jesus so far in our, our study, so if you're just visiting with us, my name is Mark, and I get to be one of the ministers here. And we're uh, lengthily into a 16-week series in Matthew, looking at what Matthew tells us about the king and or the kingdom. So those passages where he's talking about who Jesus is, it establishes who our king is. And we learn then what our kingdom will be about. When he talks about the kingdom and the parables and so forth, we can actually find out about our king within those as well. And that's been our focus on this series, uh, reminding ourselves who Jesus is and what he's doing in this world and how we get to be a part of it. Having said that, we've learned that he is the son of God. We've learned that he has authority over all things, nature, the the demons, the spiritual realm. He has power over the body, the physical illnesses, diseases, that Jesus has shown who he is, and yet he's good. He invites us into this kingdom, not because we're worthy. In fact, he invites us in spite of our worthiness. He brings us in, those who mourn and are broken and persecuted. He brings the uninvited to everything else into his kingdom. And as we learn about this king, there comes a moment where Jesus has this exchange with his disciples about who he has revealed himself to be. Never forget the words of Jesus. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. He's showing us that he's telling us something not only about himself, but about God himself and about the kingdom. 
And in light of all of that, I want us to look as we get into this passage that beginning around verse 15 uh, in your Bibles, you'll see it there that Jesus says to the disciples, a great question, who does the world think I am? What, what are you hearing about me? And they turn and say to Jesus, some say that you're John the Baptist and some say you're like Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And those are all good things. They're all flattering. Uh, they're all encouraging. The admiration is present. So they, they find that Jesus is good, that he's, that he's someone of significance, that he has prominence, that, that he carries the weight of what the Old Testament has promised that the prophecy would be. But I want you to notice that then Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, now, who do you say that I am? See, there's a difference in this question. When he says, who do they think I am? He's asking, what is the perception of me? When he asks those who know who he is, they've seen the healing, they've heard the teaching, they've seen the power demonstrated and the presence of God in their midst. They've seen the kingdom breaking through into this world. That's a different question. Those who don't know and those who do know. But I also want you to know, when he asked the disciples, who do they say that I am? And they gave these flattering responses. That's not good enough. What do we draw from this? Jesus doesn't want you to flatter him. Jesus isn't concerned that you admire him. Jesus wants you to know him. And when you know him, you go beyond just admiration. You go beyond just thinking he's swell. You move into a new realm. So he looks at his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Some of your translations say the Christ, the son of the living God. He uses the word Christos in the, in the uh, translation in the Greek. You'll see in Matthew 16, 16, it says you are the Christos. This is a political term. He's saying you're the anointed one. Why is it political? Because God told David that one of your descendants would sit on the throne forever. Now, we would assume that what he was saying is you'll always have your lineage leading these people. But he says, no, he'll sit on this throne forever. We now realize what God was alluding to that David kind of understood, but we now understand more fully having seen Jesus revealed that this is the promised king. This is a political term. Caesar would not stand by and let you call someone else king. You want to lose your life? Stand up to Caesar and say you're a king. Pilate, the Roman representative, brings Jesus into the, the trial that night. And he says, are you a king? And Jesus says, you said it. Have I said this enough? Jesus is brilliant. And he answers the question by not answering the question. And so when Peter stands up, because we love to highlight, I do, I love to highlight when Peter misses. But man, when he smokes it, it's right down the fairway, 300 yards, quick, clean and easy. He gets this one right. He says, you are the Christos. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one, the king of all kings. And then he adds to it. And you're the son of the living God. Now, what we have to remove ourselves from is having been Christians in this culture where literacy rate is, is very, very high. People have heard the stories of the scripture. You had your own Bibles. In fact, many of us have nine or 10 of them tucked around the house. We don't know, because you, know, you can't throw them away, right? You, you don't want to burn in hell, so you can't throw it away, so you just put it on a shelf until he returns, right? We're all there. So you have ample Bibles, and you have translations, and you have understanding, and we have fantastic films like The Chosen, and all of these things to bring it to life. So we're in this moment, and we hear the Son of the Living God, and we're like, yeah, yeah, that's who he is. Stop. What a statement when Peter made it. This physical man in front of him, 
And he says, you're not only the promised king like David, you're actually God and the living God, the the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When, When God used that expression, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were all dead. Yet the God who lives has been with all of us and will be with all of us going forward. This is such a dramatic political statement. Powerful. So Peter gets it right. Here's what I want you to know. We must know him for who he is. Not what we think about him. Not what we feel about him. Not what we'd like him to be. You see, when when you look at this, many people, if they're honest in their soul, if they ask their soul this question, we all have been here. I've been there. You've been there. I may be here now. I may not be here tomorrow. It's all in this situation that Jesus is a good teacher. Of course he is. But if he's just a good teacher, then you will listen to what he says and you will try or not try to implement it because there's no authority in him being a good teacher. If he's a good healer, then you will follow him as long as he fixes you. But should he not fix you, you'll find another healer. If he's just a holy man, then you will deny his deity and misunderstand his incarnation. What God did in both the flesh and the spirit by sending the son of God to earth. You see, we need to let Jesus tell us who he is and then we get to choose whether or not We believe it. You can make Jesus in your own image. You can make him a marriage fixer, a child straightener, a cancer curer. And I'm here to tell you, I think he can do all those. How about you? But I want to share with you something that I grew up in, which is hard, but very funny now as I'm older, because I've even got to use this professionally and as a parent. I would ask my mom or dad a question like, hey, can I ask you something? And my dad always had this clever little smirky response. I would say, dad, can I ask you something? And he'd say, if you can take no for an answer. Now, some of you think my dad is really harsh. No, he's awesome. But my dad was trying to say, you're not going to trick me. Let me find out what your question is and I'll give you the answer. In other words, my dad was saying to me, if you think I'm going to say yes, because you asked if you could ask, the answer is no. Because my dad loved me enough to tell me no. So I want to ask you a question. Do you know Jesus well enough that if he told you no, it's okay? What if he told you never? What if he told you not now? What if he told you yes? Do your answers change? Can Jesus be who he is regardless of what you want him to be? Can Jesus be who he is without him doing something for you? Has Jesus been good enough to you that if he never did another good thing, it's enough. That's what I mean when I say we got to know him for who he is. Because Jesus did not come to make us happy. He came to make us whole. And he did it beautifully and perfectly with no mistakes, no missteps, no misfires. See, it matters more the object of your faith than the size of your faith. That's a controversial statement. The object of your faith matters more than the size of your faith. Jesus said it this way. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. It's not how much faith we generate. It's where we place our faith. And Jesus said, when you know who I am, if you give me any faith at all, I'm going to change the world through you. And that's a powerful promise. 
It's taking in the knowledge of who he is, not just what he can do for you. As a pastor, I'm a little bit nervous over years of conversations in coffee shops and in my office and in people's living rooms and just conversations that have been good conversations. There should be no shame. But over and over and over, I'll believe in a Jesus if he'll fix my marriage. I'll believe in this Jesus if he'll cure my cancer. I'll believe in this Jesus if he'll bring my prodigal child home. I want you to be very, very careful. God is who God is, whether he performs the way we want him to or not. And when Jesus asks his disciples who know who he is, he's asking very, very clearly for what he wants. And I believe this is one of the reasons we gather each week. If, if we're honest, sometimes we wonder. And, and not disparaging those that are watching at home, many that are watching at home have to be at home for health reasons or can't travel or whatever. And we're so grateful that with technology and everything, this could be provided. But I want to caution those of us who can be together and choose not to be together. One of the reasons we gather together is not so information can be dispensed. It's so that Jesus can be revealed. That we can inspire one another to walk by faith. That we can be together sharing. It's not just me who does the talking on a Sunday. Or Drake or Elijah or Michael or whoever else is on this stage. It's actually the conversations that take place over coffee, the appointments that get made in the foyer, the, the reminders. One of my favorite things as a pastor at a church this size is to be out in the hallway and to see two people walk by and to hear this commonly. I didn't know you went here. Because now this person has a connection point during the week to work or neighborhood or home or ball games, a connection point that reminds us what we're about. We're living in a post-Christian world. What does that mean? The things that used to bind society together, the foundational pillars of law and education and science have all been dismissed and thrown away. We're not living in a Christian culture. We're in a post-Christian culture. And the world is telling you all the time that God's standards for things like marriage and parenting and community, they don't fit anymore. God got old and missed out on what's really going on. Church, one of the reasons we gather together is to remind us that Jesus Christ is the same today as he was yesterday, and he will be the same tomorrow. He is faithful, he is good, and he is right. But the world's going to tell you different. If we don't gather together and remind ourselves of who Jesus is, we might answer his question differently than we should. That is, he is Lord God Almighty. We must trust him for who he is as well. We must trust him for what we know. This is where knowing who Jesus is and gathering together to remind ourselves of the core truths that have bound society together for generations previous to ours. We must remind ourselves. He says to, to Peter, who do you say that I am? Now, Peter gives a noble confession. This isn't the first time Peter said this. I had to correct myself. For the longest time, I thought this was the first public proclamation that Jesus was the Messiah. And I found out it wasn't true. In John chapter 6, Jesus is preaching to uh, upwards of 7,000, depending on which commentaries you look at. 7,000 men and their families are all gathered around. And John, or Jesus is preaching. And Jesus preached a sermon that was not well received. It wasn't liked. There would be no pokes or thumbs up or anything else on social media. He'd got ripped. And he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be a part of my kingdom. And the crowd's response generally, according to the scriptures, was, who does he think he is? God. And if God can't offend you, he's not your God. 
So in this moment, the crowd gets up and leaves. So much so that when Jesus looks around, all that's left are his disciples. I don't know if it was just the 12 or if it was the large group of 70 that he sent out before. But when he turns around, all he's got are the core. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you're going to leave me too? And Peter responds, where would we go? You have the words of life. And then he says in John 6, 69, you are the Holy One of God. Peter knew what he meant. And Jesus knew what he meant. And in a world that likes to tell you that Jesus never said he was the son of God, why didn't he correct Peter? When Peter said, you're the son of the living God, why didn't he correct him? Is Jesus such that he would allow feign flattery to be acceptable? No, he accepted it. The reason that Jesus doesn't say he's the son of God is he was awaiting the perfect timing to reveal himself. And before Pilate, he does. And then through the resurrection, I think he kind of did too. You see, a world that's questioning what is clearly in the scripture is questioning the authority of Jesus, the authority of his word. And we need to be careful about this. I want you to see that in, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, just confessing him isn't enough. The, the demon said, what do you want with us, son of God? The demons knew who he was. So it's not just knowing who he is. It's trusting who he is. Because Jesus doesn't call Peter to something. He calls Peter himself something. And this is what he says in verse 17. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my father in heaven. I love that. You're not blessed because you said the right thing. You're blessed because you saw what you saw. You're aware of who I am. That's the blessing that God revealed to you. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. There's a lot of discussion in Christianity historically about the rock. Was Peter the rock? Was his confession the rock? And I think I'd like to correct some theology here. Jesus is the rock. It's on Jesus that the church gets built. In verse 18, it says, I will build my church, quoting Jesus. Peter didn't build the church. He's not the protector of the church. Peter was a pebble on the rock. Or as it says in the New Testament, that with the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, that those were the, the stones that were laid on the cornerstone, the foundational stone, and they were built and we are adding layer by layer. We're all just pebbles in this grand thing Jesus is building. But where does it begin? It begins in knowing who he is and then trusting it. It's not about believing that he's God. He's demonstrated he is. It's actually living as if he's God. And this is the question for every single one of us, most every day of our life. Jesus said, and I will build my church, ecclesia, the called out community, those who are stepping out of culture and following him. There is an expectation in the question that if you know who he is, you live like it. It's such a shame that Satan is so effective to convince so many people that it, if in one day in their life they made a profession of Jesus, then that's all they needed to do. And disregard completely his request to follow him. Active, engaged, participating, trusting, learning, growing, sharing. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
It's so easy for me to sit up here and shoot at straw men, right? You create this dichotomy to what the scripture teaches and you knock it down. You look so noble and strong. I don't want to do that. But I do want to clarify. Jesus did not tell Peter that what you guys decide, that's good. Just run with it. Just make up the rules as you go. It's not what he's saying. When he actually says to them, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He said, I'm going to take you back to the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended on these untrained, uneducated fishermen and servants and general folk. And when the Holy Spirit came on them, Peter preached the fully, for the very first time, the full gospel presented upon the resurrection of Jesus. And he went back historically and showed who Jesus was and what evidence there was to believe in him. And then he called on people to repent and trust Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus promised fulfilled to the disciples that when you stand before kings and rulers, I will give you the words. It's not because Peter made up the words or they got together and decide, hey, let's write some bylaws. No, actually, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and the authority of God's scriptures came through them. And in that moment, this is when we're most the church. Do you see how this connects now? Let me put it all together. Knowing who Jesus is is important. Living your life like he actually is that guy is the church. And that's what the Holy Spirit brought together. A group of people committed to living this out. We are not architecting anything. Jesus is the one who's building the church. And we, as the called out community, follow him or we don't. It begins with knowledge. It's responded to with faith. Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Pause there for a moment. This Jesus we're pursuing, he wasn't caught off guard that last week. There was nothing that happened to Jesus in the Passion Week that he wasn't fully aware, so much so that he told the disciples so when it happened, they would not be caught off guard, that they could trust him. It didn't always work though, did it? Like you and me, they got scared, they got frantic, they panicked, they hid. They had many, many reasons. Powerful things happened that week where they were unfortunate and ugly and and painful. And yet Jesus told them about this. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Let's pause there for a moment. Did Peter do a bad thing? Bad. Are you uncomfortable with what Peter did or would you have done the same? If, if this man you followed and loved and left everything for told you that he was willingly going to go to Jerusalem and these corrupt politician religious leaders were going to take him and beat him and persecute him and kill him, would you have tried to stop it too? I don't think Peter's a bad guy. In fact, I think his humanity is overwhelming. Yet it's easy to paint him as a bad guy because what does Jesus say? Verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Yikes. That's in my translation. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You can read this a hundred ways. What spins me off the most is Peter rebuked Jesus. All right. Think about that. That word means to condemn, to correct to, to chastise, whatever words you want to use, it brings you the most juice. He actually <laughs> said, you're the son of the living God, but I know more than you about this. He rebuke him. He corrected Jesus as if he was wrong. And this is where the lordship of Jesus becomes important. Peter did emotionally what he felt he needed to do. So what do we learn from this? This simple truth, 
Your emotions have nothing to do with faith. It doesn't matter what we feel like. If we know who he is, we make his authority more important than our feelings. In a post-Christian culture, guess what we're dealing with now? It's hard to stand up for some truths that make people feel bad. It's tough to stand on the truth when it makes you look like an ogre, a closed-minded bigot, a person who doesn't care about anything but themselves going to heaven. Are you with me, church? I'm feeling it. Are you? It is hard to, it's been hard to stand on truth our whole life. It's even harder when the entire world condemns you for it. But to stand on truth, we have to ask ourselves a question. Are the standards of God cruel? Are the standards of God evil? Is God out to just dislike half the world? Jesus proves that false, doesn't it? And so in the truth of all of this, he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, I'd like to give you some insight on that. I'm not, I don't want to soften it. I'm not putting a little butter on it and put it in the microwave so it's soft and creamy for you. I, I want you to understand this. Craig Keener, in his commentary on Matthew, says that a disciple would never walk in front of the rabbi, nor would they walk equal to their rabbi. A follower of the rabbi always stayed behind. Does it make a little sense, maybe, why Jesus told him to get behind me, Satan? Go back to Matthew chapter four. Jesus is trying to honor God, being tempted in the wilderness. Satan shows up and gives him three shortcuts. Hey, you can have this if you take this shortcut. You can have the same thing if you take this shortcut. You can have the same thing if you take the shortcut. And all three times, Jesus said, not my will be done, but his. Not my will, but his. Not my will, but his. It's not exact quotes, but using scripture. He said, this is what God wants. This is what God gets. When he looked at Peter and he said, get behind me, he said, Peter, I don't need you to lead me. I need you to follow me. I need you to submit, even when I tell you no, even when I tell you not yet, even when I tell you never. I need you to trust me. You know who I am, right? Can you trust that? Can you live this out? Elton Trueblood said, faith is not belief without proof. Faith is trust without reservation. So what it means, remember I said, it's the amount of your faith. The smallest amount of trust without reservation can move mountains when that trust is set on Jesus himself and not my feelings, not what the culture wants, and not even my friends who think that God is too harsh and unloving. So he said, never, Lord. And it's like, Peter, you don't understand. It's what Satan wants me to do. He doesn't want me to go to the cross. He doesn't want me to die for the sins of the world. He doesn't want me to show the power of the resurrection and free all of you from the captivity and wrath of God. He doesn't want me to do this. And you're asking me not to do this. Get behind me and follow me and stop giving me shortcuts. Make a little more sense? Sounds like my Jesus. Not the one I want to make up, but remember the, the scripture clarifies cloudy scriptures. And when you see the whole of it, you understand what's taking place here. See, faith is living as if something you believe in is true. John Mark Comer said that, and that has startled me for the last six weeks. Faith is living as if something you believe is true. Last thing I want you to see is that Jesus' own words, in response to his disciples, he calls us that we must live sacrificially. There's no question about this. The lordship of Jesus is demonstrated. It's not just confessed. Verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, choice, 
Whoever chooses to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their souls? Please notice in verse 26 that Jesus is telling us what's at risk here. Do not miss this. This is a matter of the development of our soul to be his disciple. And then he tells us what it means to follow him. Verse 24, take up your cross. In our culture today, because of so many scriptures and so many sermons on this text and, and so many of us have knowledge of this and our own take on it or whatever the, it might be that how we phrase it, we hear this differently than they would have. We make it poetic. We make it symbolic or figurative. They understood this to be literal. He had just told them what was going to happen to him. He told them how they were going to kill him. And so he's challenging them to take up the cross. But please understand this. His audience would have heard it differently than us. We think taking up the cross, we even use the expression, what's well, the cross I have to bear? Be really careful about that. Because let me tell you the truth. You didn't carry a cross for two hours and set it down. You didn't carry a cross on Tuesday to pick it up again on Friday when you went to the retreat. When you picked up a cross, it killed you. That moment. It's an instrument of death, not an inconvenience. So Jesus would tell them with this picture, take up your cross. You're a dead man walking. And then deny yourself. This is the hardest thing he asks us to do. It's not the cross. And whoever does this must deny themselves. To carry the cross means you die to self every day so that you can follow Jesus using the same exact example he did. It's a choice to die for Jesus in the same way that Jesus chose to die for us. And verse 24, and follow him behind in submission, allowing his authority to be your only authority, allowing his wishes to be your only wishes. And that's hard in today's world. I'm not going to lie. I have to be honest. If I'm going to confess, the hardest part for me is there are people in the world I want so much to know Jesus, but they think that Jesus is overbearing and he doesn't understand what they're going through and he can't be trusted. And it's heartbreaking to see people you care about not know Jesus. So instead of me being the rule keeper and the judge of every event, I just need to be the inviter into the kingdom. I need to introduce them to Jesus and allow that to soften all the arguments that Satan lies to them about because they're good people. They're not evil. They're just wrong because they don't trust him. It's because they don't know him. So we take up a cross and we follow this king and then we seek life. Verse 25, he says, whoever should save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I know this is really esoteric on a Sunday morning, but just do with it what you will. Ask your soul a question this week, which means you're going to have to turn off the noise. You're going to have to turn off all the things in the world that clamor for your time and ask your soul, sit down and listen to your own soul. Ask your, ask your soul what it really wants. What's really missing? Why there's moments of emptiness and you do that by, by stopping and praying and seeking. Because for most of us, we're seeking something abundant, but it's not life. It's abundant money or treasures or fame or accomplishment or purpose. And Jesus said, when you die to self and you let those dreams and ambitions go, you're going to find the thing you're looking for. And that is the one who loves you. The one who died for you in your broken, incomplete condition without judgment 
but with mercy and goodness and grace. And then that, that's the one we trust, isn't it? The one who stays with us when everybody else leaves, the one who knows our secrets and loves us anyway. And then he says in verses 27 and 28 that the son of man is going to come. Look with me here. For the son of man is going to come in his father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What does this mean? Jesus said, no, everything I'm asking you to trust will be delivered on. Every moment, every belief. Live as if I'm real and I'm going to show you how real I am. I will come back and set everything right. And those of you that have placed your soul in my care will find your soul alive. And those of you that place your soul in the care of money or fame or friendships, you're going to find that they could not sustain you. They could not protect you and keep you. And then he says, some of you will not see death. I was asked this question three times after the last hour. So I want to take a moment to make sure I clearly explain this. My understanding of this text is that Jesus is not talking about the end time. He's actually saying to them, I promise that I'm going to return but I want you to know that some of you are not going to be here when I return the second time, but you're going to see the kingdom in its power. What is he talking about? The resurrection church. Everything they feared was gone when he walked out of the tomb and told them, you'll walk out of yours too. You see the power of overcoming what sin has brought on us. Jesus said, the kingdom is appearing before you now. It's complete. And the reason we're the church is we're not living in a one day kingdom. We're living in today's kingdom. We live for a different king under a different authority, under a different lifestyle, not because we're better, but because we know the one who is. And he said to those 12 men, and only 11 of them would be there when it happened, that I'll come out of the tomb and you're going to realize the power of my kingdom. And I ask you to place what little faith you have in me and watch me change the world. He is the Lord. His death, burial, and resurrection proved it. Eyewitness account, not mythology, not fiction or fable. True eyewitness accounts of both believers and unbelievers. You see, here's what I want you to do. Today's not a day to flatter him. He's bigger than that. These are the days to bow before him, to die to self, that you might understand what it means to live only for him. Be honest, be sincere, become committed. Be the person who lives as if Jesus is true and you will find life. It's not about that we do it by our own power. If we follow him, stay behind him and trust his authority, he brings us to life. A life that's needed. A life that matters. So in just a few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And we're going to sing a couple of songs. Songs that testify and if, if you're someone here today who has never said, Jesus is, you're the Christ, you're the King, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. If today's the day that you know who he is and you choose to follow him, celebrate that with us. Confess that to somebody today so that you can begin living the life of following him fully and wholeheartedly. And for those of us that have found ourselves stopped on the path of discipleship, pray today with someone or on your own that the Holy Spirit will guide you to focus your mind and heart on who Jesus is and watch life begin to resurrect in you. Maybe you want to pray for somebody like I do 
who won't hear who Jesus is because they've already decided against all the evidence. Maybe you want someone to pray with you this week for that person. We'd love to do that as well. But each week we gather, we do something. We take that little cup and that little, I'll call it bread. Don't call me a liar. Okay, that bread and that little cup. And the reason we do this every week is for several reasons. It's a great reminder. Jesus asked us to do this. But it's also something that I want you to feel today. It is your personal testimony. You have permission today not to participate. I want you to, but if you cannot say that he is your Lord, if you cannot say that your allegiance is to him over and above everything else, spend a few moments. It doesn't mean you don't get to participate, but today would be a great day to testify. That has not been true of my yesterday, but it will be true of my today. Renew your heart in him. Eat his flesh and drink his blood. And instead of being offended, be inspired. He's the one who deserves our allegiance. He's the one who went to the cross to die for the entire world. Those who would reject him and those who would receive him. And he did it out of love and he did it out of mercy. We have a good, kind king who's inviting us into his kingdom. And if you're a part of his kingdom, you testify today. I eat his flesh and I drink his blood. He is my king. He is my hope. He's my allegiance. And if you cannot make that testimony today, we would love as a community to embrace you and share with you why we do and teach you about our king who changes the world. Let's pray. Father, we receive you in these elements. Jesus, we receive the gift of your life, your hope, your peace. We eat and drink today in honor of you. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death for all of us. Until that day, you come again with the new kingdom, fully established, a new heaven, a new earth, and we are made new in you. We testify to you in community. You are the son of the living God. And by the power of your name, we pray. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.